You want to progress up to it. But once you're able to do more intense work, don't keep walking on the treadmill. Why are you doing that? It's time to run. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At WCSU, the podcast that is just as good as going to college. That's right. I think you don't have to actually get a degree from Western Connecticut State University. You can just listen to this podcast and learn everything you need to know about uh, that'll help you be a good citizen, get a good job and go out into the world. Is that I, okay, Pete? Yeah, I think that's great advice. It's going to save people a lot of money. Yeah, and time, too. May not. I mean, when you go get a job, they may not want to hear that, though, is my only concern. <laughs> they probably want the degree. I don't know. We'll just say it's the university at West at WCSU. There you go. They'll just gloss over it. Nobody reads your resume anyway. <laughs> and I think I could say that uh, today because we have a lot of good educational stuff. We have Dr. Rada Krell coming in for the Science Minute, talking about uh, how the best teachers go about uh, learning and experimenting with science. We have our Live, Director of Library Services, Veronica Knausis, coming in to talk about a book minute and, uh, or what do we call it, the book talk? Do we have a name for it? it it's it's ever-changing, but yeah. You guys, you guys kept calling it book talk, so apparently that's what it's called. Uh, something about <laughs> books. And that was really interesting. And our main uh, interview today was with Dr. Jeff Schlicht. He's the a professor at Health Promotion and Exercise Sciences on campus. He's been, he was one of the founding members and uh, talking about how important exercise is as medicine, not just your overall health, but how you can look at uh, exercise as medicine to uh, get better or stay healthy. So, I mean, you can't get better. If you spent all day at WestCon as a student, you wouldn't get a better education than you just got. <laughs> You'll get by listening to this podcast. You said it. Luckily, professors don't listen to the podcast, so we won't get any pushback here. <laughs> all right. So uh, what else is going on that we should uh, mention here? That's it. I mean, this is uh, the end of of remote week here everybody's been quarantining in the residence halls and all the classes have been online but starting monday we're uh well not fully back but back as much yeah. as we have been for the last year that's right keep wearing your mask but you can go to class in person if that's how it's scheduled there'll be a lot of online stuff still but it will be as back to normal as you can get during covid19 yeah it'll be nice to see uh human beings walking around again yeah it will be it's been months. Anyway. Very quiet. Yeah. We're going to have a snowstorm next week, so yes. that'll shut everything down again. But All right. Yeah. Okay. But as I do want to say, when there's a snowstorm, you still have to go to class. It'll all be online. In the old days, last year, we'd have a snowstorm and it shut everything down. You take a snow day, sleep in late. That doesn't happen anymore. That's a real bummer. Yeah, including for you and me, right? Yeah. We used to just have a day off and got paid for it. Now we actually have to work during a snow day. Oh, well. Yeah, I guess we'll That's live with it. That's how we grew up, right? <laughs> I guess so. We're still getting paid, so what the hell? <laughs> All right, first up, let's welcome Jeff Schlicht. So help us understand this program that you have that uh, is... Um, helping people understand the benefits of exercise on campus. All right. Well, it was, I think I'm going to say now, maybe six years ago, the American College of Sports Medicine created a program called Exercises Medicine on Campus. And their Exercises Medicine, I'm going to abbreviate that as EIM. So mm -hmm. EIM is uh, something that the American College of Sports Medicine, or here's another acronym, ACSM, has been promoting for about 20 years, with the main goal of trying to get the medical community to begin to prescribe exercise to treat various diseases and conditions, because we have plenty of very strong evidence that it works. Um, but doctors, even nurses, aren't really trained in exercise prescription. And so ACSM has been working to try to 
make that happen over, like I said, a number of years. So this six years or so, they decided, well, let's start recruiting campuses because if we talk to you know students, people 18 to 22, and we teach them about exercises, medicine, then they'll move into their professions have having already this information and this idea, and then hopefully they'll be proponents of it and promote it. So I enrolled our campus, and at the time I started um, just at the very beginning level, and they described the levels that you participate in by three tiers. Um, according to sort of like the Olympic gold medal colors, I think, bronze, silver, and gold, right? So depending on what you're going to be doing on your campus, you qualify for one of those. And initially, I just sent in the paperwork saying, well, we have a recreation department, and we talk about physical activity in the HPX or health motion exercise sciences department classes. So that that's good enough to qualify you in the entry-level stuff. And then the next year, I looked more deeply into what they were doing, and I added some more information to it. Well, here are some of the extracurricular programs we run. We have a 5K that we do um, because they wanted to know that you were actually promoting activity on campus to qualify for the second level, not just have a gym, basically. If you have a gym, you're bronze. If you promote it and you're doing things, then it's silver. So that was the next, next year where I described all the things that the university recreation primarily did to qualify. And then at that point, I looked into what it what it meant to be able to be gold, the highest standard. And that requirement is that you get your health services department involved in promoting physical activity, because that's the ultimate goal of exercise is medicine, right? We want doctors and nurses to be talking to patients about exercise as a treatment, um, whether we're talking about primary prevention, so you don't get a disease, or secondary prevention, so whatever disease you have, you can make it go away, or even tertiary prevention, which is, okay, you've got this condition, we can't get rid of it, but exercise is going to make things better, so let's control it, right? Um, so I went over to health services, and I said, I've been doing this program for a couple of years. In order for us to move the program to the next level, I need to work with you, and specifically, you you as a department need to begin to treat exercise like you would treat blood pressure or cholesterol. In other words, you begin to measure it on a regular basis when you talk to your clients and say, well, how much exercise have you been doing, right? And you, you add that to their medical record, just like you have a blood pressure score, just like you have a cholesterol score. You'll also have a section in your medical record for your physical activity status. And that um, ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine, calls that using or describing physical activity as a vital sign, and they abbreviate that PAV, physical activity as a vital sign. So they want doctors and nurses to treat exercise status just like a vital sign that they already do. So um, initially, health services was like, well, here's our intake form, and it was a single piece of paper and literally no room for anything else to be added to that single piece of paper right, because we we're in the paper age, right, they weren't doing things digitally. So uh, they were like, where do we, you know, we can't put this in. Um, and it actually took me a, a semester or two, to, um, I can't remember exactly how long it took, to convince them, hey, let's find some room, give me your form, I'll redesign it, and I'll put it in. And so um, that's basically what I did. I took the form that they had, and I, you know, did whatever I did to it so that I could find a little space to add a single statement about how much physical activity you do, and we were only evaluating cardio-respiratory activity, which is stuff like running, swimming, biking, right? Even though we do know you're also supposed to do strength training, but there just wasn't room to ask that one, right? So that was the beginning. I got that question onto the form, and health services began to use the form. So that's the intro. Mm -hmm. And so you can talk a little bit about the benefits of exercise, what you know about how uh, exercise e either keeps you from getting sick or helps you get better or helps you, as you said, modulate an illness. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I mean, I have to commend the staff over at Health Services because Nancy was, Nancy Hench, who's the director of Health Services now, was particularly interested in it and she's the real champion of it, right? There had to be someone invested in it in health services. And so she was the one who said, yeah, this is a great idea. And she and Joanne Zanella, one of the nursing uh, nurses over there, 
have done their own work to kind of educate themselves to understand some of the basics about exercise prescriptions so that they know what they're supposed to be saying. And the, you know, for everybody listening to this, the basics are this. You are supposed to be doing at least 150 minutes of cardio a week. And I think most people know what cardio means. You know, that's the running, swimming, biking thing. You're supposed to do at least 150 minutes of that if you're going at a moderate intensity, which is something like uh, six out of 10 on an intensity scale. Mm. If you're willing to work harder, like let's say an eight out of 10, you can cut that number in half to 75 minutes. So that's the bottom line prescription for cardio, 75 minutes of vigorous intensity or 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity. And then for strength training, you're supposed to be doing that two days a week, at least two to three days a week, but minimum two. And that is supposed to be at a high intensity of 80, again, a eight out of 10 on an intensity scale. So that's the basics of exercise prescription. Two days a week, lifting weights, eight out of 10 on intensity, cardio, Theoretically, you could just do one day a week, according to the guidelines, as long as you got the total minutes in, 75 or 150. Though, personally, I believe that it makes a lot more sense to divide it across days because the some of the effects of exercise are transient, right? They're there for the time you're exercising and maybe for a few hours afterwards, and then they kind of go away, um, like blood pressure reduction, for example. So if you only did one workout of 150 minutes once a week, yeah, you're going to affect your blood pressure for that time frame, but and maybe for the next day. But then you got those other five days where if you didn't, if you exercised again, you might have got another benefit. So I think this is a personal opinion that it should be divided across multiple days. So when I talk to students about it, I break that 75 minutes up into well, let's say if you did your intense workout three days a week, you could do 20, three 25 minute sessions. So go do a 25 minute hit class three times. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're someone that prefers to walk. Well, let's, let's divide 150 by five. So five days a week, do a 30-minute walk, and you'll accomplish the guidelines. And what does weight training do for you? Well, weight training, I think, is something that we know a lot more about today than we did even five years ago in terms of the benefit for health, because I think most people think of weight training as, well, you get stronger and you get bigger muscles, right? Um, which is true. If you do the correct amount of work and at the proper intensity, you'll get bigger muscles and you'll get stronger. But the benefits from a health perspective, the most obvious one that a lot of people are aware of is that it affects your bones to make them stronger. So it helps to reduce your risk for osteoporosis. So it's a standard prescription for particularly petite older women to make sure that they're getting enough pressure on their bones to keep their bones as healthy as they can. Um, but again, like I said, over the last five, maybe eight years, our knowledge base is extended to understand that exercises, uh, resistance training or strength training exercises, similar to cardio in its effects on some other things like blood pressure, uh, even impacts cholesterol levels as well. So um, important for that. I, I would say that the biggest reason, though, to do strength training, uh, it depends on your goal, right? So as a young person, and speaking to the students who may be listening to this 18 to 22, maybe one of the reasons that you want to exercise is weight control. That seems to be a primary goal for someone of that age because you're not thinking about having a heart attack or osteoporosis, which it shouldn't be, right? You're not going to, mm -hmm. that's not going to happen for 20 to 40 years, right? But weight control, if that is your goal, the benefit of strength training is that it helps to maintain muscle mass, which is a metabolically active tissue. So, by doing strength training, you're going to keep your muscle mass tone and you'll add to it. And that accelerates your weight loss. Doing cardio is a very efficient way of burning calories. So you definitely need to be doing cardio to get rid of the weight. But you keep doing the strength training to maintain the muscle mass so that you don't lose any of it. Because if you reduce calories too much, you might actually lose some muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So it really helps with weight loss. Um, if you were talking to somebody about the best way to lose weight, the, the answer is you need to do both exercise plus reduce dietary intake. And exercise should include both cardio and resistance training to preserve muscle mass. So that's if your goal is weight control. For any, uh, let's say, alums out here that are listening to this that may be a bit older, for your older age groups, it's about preserving muscle mass and functional independence. So what happens after 50 or whatever um, just like all your other physical functions, your muscle quality and quantity begins to decline. Uh, the quality part 
are the type two muscle fibers. Those are the fibers that contract really quickly and allow us to do powerful things, which is exerting force over time. So you, you can't sprint as fast as you used to be able to sprint. And it's not because you're out of breath, but it's literally because the muscle fibers that are in your legs aren't the same kind, you don't have the same quantity that you used to. So you can't exert the power. Doing powerful resistance training exercises can help to buffer that loss. And just generally muscle mass goes down. We refer to that process once it gets really extreme as sarcopenia, where you've lost a lot of muscle mass and you know your physical function is impaired. So resistance training at an older age is gonna help prevent, hopefully, sarcopenia, mm -hmm. deteriorated muscle quality that we don't wanna have. All of that leads to frailty, right? If you if it does happen to you, you become frail. And then it's that circle that we talk about all the time, which is if you lose function, you end up doing less because you don't have the function and that makes you lose more function, right? And so you're just spiraling downward. That's why 18 to 22 year olds, you want to establish these habits now so that as you become 50, 60 years old, it's been part of your life for 40 years and you're not gonna quit. Mm -hmm. It's just what you do. Right. And you feel guilty if you don't. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I hope so. That's good. <laughs> what? Uh, so do you think, have you seen evidence that our students here at WestCon are participating more or exercising more since uh, you started this program a while ago? So that's hard for me to measure, really. Um, I do articulate with health, service, health services in that I offer my own personal services as an exercise counselor. So occasionally students will say, yeah, I want to talk to somebody about exercise so I can do more. And they get referred to me and they come over to my office hours and I talk to them about it. But, um, you know, those numbers are relative, are, are small. Mm -hmm. And it's not anywhere near the total proportion of students they actually interact with all the time asking them about exercise. So I can't easily answer that question. What I will say, you know, the data that I do have or that I'm aware of is, what are participation rates like with the recreation department, right? That's our gyms on the Midtown campus in Berkshire Hall or over on the west side in the bottom of Pinney, right? Those are the two main student fitness centers. There's also a swimming pool on the west side that students could be going to. And then, of course, the west side has some outdoor places like the uh, walking trail in the woods. So you can go out there and walk or even walking around Ives Concert Park um, is a good exercise alternative. Rec anyway, recreation is charting their attendance. And the unfortunate thing, well, obviously not surprising with COVID, it's gone way down. Mm. Uh, even prior to that, it seemed like rates of utilization of the rec facilities on campus had been trending downward. And we're not really sure why that is. Um, I mean, in my dream world, it's because everybody is so aware that exercise is important. They've all joined a gym and they're doing it on their own and they don't need to come to the campus and, and work out, right? Um, but that's my dream world. Um, we do know that participation rates nationally are not as high as they should be. Um, and so I have to assume that our student body represents the national population similarly. Um, so I guess I'm saying the short answer is I think they're actually less than they should be. And that's part of why exercise as medicine on campus is important because we're trying to raise awareness. So one of the things, for those of you who've been on campus at all in the fall, you may have noticed that a student and I went around all the buildings and went to all the elevator shafts and we put up a little sign in front of the elevators that says something like, have you thought about taking the stairs today? A little graphic with someone walking up the stairs. And then there's a, a couple of bullet points about how it's beneficial. Even that little bit of physical activity is good for you, what it does for you. Um, and so every, all the buildings, all the elevator uh, button areas where you press it to get on the elevator has that sign. And we also put them inside the elevator so that when you're in there, you're, you're looking at that. And that's one of the things that our program specifically, Exercises Medicine on Campus, was trying to do this fall. That was our goal was to do this, raise awareness about taking the stairs. And we were thinking when people come back, you know, we're still going to be concerned about COVID as students come in next week. Why, why would you take the elevator, right? Why would you mm -hmm. be in a closed space where you can't be six feet apart from someone else? It's not yeah. logical, right? So this sign is a way of saying, not only from a COVID perspective, should you not be taking the elevator, but here are the actual benefits. So this is, this is a positive reason for why you should do it. So I'm hoping that that'll have a little bit of an impact here uh, this spring as students come back, at least some of them will look at it and go, you, you know, you're right. Why am I doing this to myself? 
I can get a positive benefit from walking up the stairs and I don't take the risk of being in an enclosed space with somebody who may be asymptomatic with COVID. Right. That's a no-brainer, it seems like. That's a no-brainer to me. <laughs> and if you want to send anybody to a really uh, good set of stairs, send them to Old Main. <laughs> okay. From All right. So if anybody wants a stair worker, actually, the, the, worst, uh, the worst or the best stairs are um, the admin building across the street. Uh, have you seen, you know, the incline of those stairs. I mean, literally, you would die if you fell down that stairwell. <laughs> that's, that's true. how steep it is. <laughs> so... I so if you want, that's the hardest stairwell on campus, right? The, admin. the, long, the longest straight one is in um, the edu not the education, the um, classroom building on the west side, right? Yeah, the right. The, the habit trail. I call that the habit trail. It looks like one. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, the habit trail. That that is definitely a long stairwell. So if you do that main stair stairwell there and inside uh, that building, you'll get a good workout. Yeah, you can. It's uh, intensive. Yes. I would say, and I mean, if someone really wants to do a stair workout, I think probably your best bet is to go into the football stadium because those are nice wide stairs. The incline is reasonable, but not not, not low, and you're outdoors. So right. if you're going to do a stair workout, go to the football stadium and run stairs there. All right. That's good to know. Now, a lot of people, even on campus, don't really understand what health promotion and exercise science is yeah. or does. Okay, uh, great. Thank you for that segue. So the, our department, that's what Paul was just referring to the name of our department, which is called Health Promotion and Exercise Sciences, but often we just have shortened it to the acronym HPX. So, you know, usually people just call it HPX. Mm -hmm. So our department has uh, one, two, has a couple of majors, and we have a third master's degree program coming online in the fall. Um, so the two current undergraduate majors that we have, one is health education for obviously students that want to go work in high schools and grade schools and teach health ed. And the other is called health promotion studies. And health promotion studies is for students who want to talk about health behaviors to a variety of populations. And that um, health promotion studies major is broken down into several different options, including the allied health option, and that's for students who are gonna to go to grad school because they want to become physical therapists, for example. Then there is the fitness and wellness option, which is the one that I supervise, and that's for students that wanna work with pretty much on an individual level, right? So uh, on the most basic level, we're talking about personal training, but you may also be moving into working in the corporate environment, helping to run a wellness program at a corporate uh, location like PepsiCo, for example. In fact, one of our graduates is the person who runs the PepsiCo mm -hmm. program, right? Which is, you know, a major international corporation. So um, there's that. Then there's the community health major for those students that want to go and work at, let's say, the Danbury Department of Health. And again, we've placed students there who have graduated and worked there. So, um, and we have st uh, students who are working all over the place. One of the really interesting things about our major is that we require an internship and have done this forever, uh, where students have to put in uh, 450 hours, which is basically 35 hours a week in, in a semester at an internship site. And over the years, that has led to many, many, many job placements. We have a really good job offer rate coming out of internships with our students. Internships have been a really valuable part of our major, which I think now the university over the last few years has been pushing everybody to start thinking about it. We've been doing it for, for uh, 20 years, right? That our students have been required to, to do internships. So mm -hmm. for any students out there listening to this, if your goal is to get into healthcare and you don't wanna be a medical professional, then you're thinking about the HPX department, right? We're not doing nursing, we're not creating doctors, but everything outside of that, what we call allied health, we're there, and exercise is a critical part of the healthcare system. Um, with the Obamacare uh, um, Affordable Care Act promotion that happened now several years ago, primary prevention, stopping people from getting diseases, is being reimbursed for the first time ever. And so um, there are opportunities for exercise professionals to work in medical care systems to help control costs for hospital systems, for example, et cetera. 
it really is a field with a lot of opportunities in a variety of settings. Again, from personal working in a gym or owning your own gym to working corporate and running wellness programs for PepsiCo to working in a hospital setting if that's what you desire. Yeah, our HPX students are all around the region, all around the state in New York. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it is, I help people know more about our major than I think they do, because mm. really it is an incredible major. We have done, and you know, I'm part of the department, so I'll take a little credit, but really, I think the internship is one of the huge things, and that's Denise Coliani's mm -hmm. uh, baby, and she's really been in charge of that for as long as I've been here, so she des she deserves a ton of credit for the work that she does as the internship coordinator. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into this area of uh, research and study? That's a story that goes back to my undergraduate days. Um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of California, San Diego, in La Jolla, California, visit, love it. Um, yeah. I, I was actually trying to remember how I met Howard Hunt, who was the person who turned me into the person I am today, really. He was a physical education professor, and I must I take a class with him, a, a, an activity class. I think it was a swimming class. Anyway, started talking to him, and he ran his own business as well as being a teacher, and he was doing health promotion for local small businesses and school districts. So he would go into these locations, and he would evaluate people's blood pressure. They would bring a phlebotomist and take blood draws and, and get cholesterol, do a basic smack panel, which which is a panel that provides you basic blood lipid information. So they would do that. They would do a step test to calculate a very um, basic evaluation of someone's fitness level. And then they'd take all that information and come back and do a presentation to the organization and say, here's how your employees are doing. And of course, each employee would get their own individual analysis. And so I volunteered when I found out they were doing that. I was just an undergraduate student. I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And so I just volunteered. So I'm gonna take a break out of this to say to the undergrads listening to this, volunteering for things that you think are interesting as an undergrad, open doors that you would never have expected. It's not like I was, a, I was a psychology student as an undergrad. So I had no idea that health promotion was something that I wanted to do. But when I heard Howard talking about this, I was like, you know what, that's kind of interesting. You need someone to help you out, sure, I'll show up. And so I went, I think the first time I did that was to the Vista California School District and I helped them run, you know, their programs. I was the, I sat at the door and chucked people in. That was what I was doing. Um, so that was the beginning of it, really. And then, of course, I spent a few years with him. I graduated. I worked with him as his office manager in the business. And then I was, I got interested in, in just the health promotion idea, thinking it would be interesting for me to run a business like this, but I can't do that on an undergraduate degree. So then I went back to get my master's. Um, and then while I was getting my master's degree in physical education, I got, you know, I was reflecting about, do I want to be a business person? Do I want to run a business? How much do I enjoy being in school? Which I've always enjoyed being in school, right? Even as a, as a young person, you know, in fifth grade, third grade, whatever, I was one of those kids that if there was a scholastic competition, I was doing it, right? Like mm -hmm. I wanted to compete that way. So I'd always enjoyed it. And I think when I was in my master's program, I really started reflecting a little more closely about what does the future really mean? And I'm just not a business person, right? I didn't have a desire or strive, a love for that compared to the educational environment. So at that point, I decided, you know what? Um, I need to go get a PhD if I'm going to stay in higher education because um, that's where I wanted to be. Uh, so I went to the University of Connecticut specifically because, well, there were two reasons. One is because the um, assistantship that I was offered as a graduate student, a PhD student, was directly running the employee wellness program at UConn. Hmm. So that was what I wanted to do, right? It was exactly, I mean, it couldn't have been a better fit for me. And on top of that, at that time, UConn was paying in the field that I was in, was paying the highest inter, uh, the, uh, the highest um, salary to graduate students, right? So I was making the most money and I was doing the, the thing that I wanted to do. That's what brought me to Connecticut, right? Um, uh, spent my got my PhD at the University of Connecticut, and then I was working uh, as an adjunct for Eastern Connecticut State University. And Western was looking for someone to uh, I don't know if you remember Phyllis Cooper, but Phyllis Cooper was the end of the PE department. She was looking for someone to replace whoever it was that retired at that point, and she was speaking to Western. Uh, I'm sorry, Eastern about it, and they mentioned me as an adjunct and said, "Well, why don't you give this guy a call." 
So Phyllis Cooper called me and uh, I was like, sure, I'll come out for an interview. I sat down um, in the, well, I met with Phyllis and then I met with the administration. And the interesting thing about that meeting was it was a temporary appointment at the time. And the conversation that I had with Gene Buccini at that point was, I can't guarantee that the PE department's even gonna be around in two years, right? Because at that time, PE was just a service department for the gen ed. And the admin was trying to force the, whatever health ed was called, there was a health department, I don't remember what they were called, plus PE, and they were trying to force those two to merge. But the professors in those departments didn't wanna merge. I, on the other hand, was like, that's where, that's where it should be, right? Exercise is supposed to be under health, right? Because it is part of that. And so for me, it was a perfect fit. It made total sense. So I came in, they hired me to revamp the Fitness for Life major, which when I, or, or uh, I'm sorry, the Fitness for Life gen ed program, which at the time was simply go do a bunch of sport things. There wasn't, there weren't even fitness classes, right? It was all just tennis or badminton or bowling, bowling, there was bowling, golf, all that kind of stuff. So I came in, I was like, all right, well, the first thing we need to do is offer fitness classes because that's where the health side is, right? Mm -hmm. So I did that. And then I added a lecture component because I wanted students to understand why exercise was important, right? To just force you to go and do exercise twice a week without an explanation doesn't make sense to me. So the lecture part is the explanation part. And that's why the HPX 177 Fitness for Life program is a lecture plus an activity because that was my design. I want you to understand the why so that when you graduate, when you leave 177, you keep doing it because you've been convinced, oh, it's going to help prevent me from having a heart attack. That's probably mm -hmm. a good thing to do. Um, so I, I came in, did, did revamp 177, put that in place. And then I facilitated the merger of physical education and Health Sciences, I think is what it was called, the Health Sciences Department into this new department called HPX. Jody Rachel was a com key component of that as well. Uh, she retired from coaching the women's basketball team and moved into the PE department. Um, and she was a great asset to us because of her connections throughout the university. I mean, because everybody loves Jody, who doesn't love right. her? Yep. So she was, I mean, for that reason alone, she was a great colleague, um, but she was also just a great person, is a great person. Um, so Jody helped to facilitate it. I helped to facilitate the merging of the departments and we decided to call it HPX because I thought it sounded cool. <laughs> That's what, I was like, I want the X part because it really should be HPE, right? Health promotion and exercise is HPE. Um, but I was like, forget that. That sounds lame, HPE, but HBX, that's got some something to it. So uh, I was the one that said, let's go with this acronym. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, here we are today, went from a service department where all we did was offer a gen ed class, 177, and now we have 250 majors. Yeah. Yeah. Very popular program. And that story you just told was fascinating for two reasons. One, it demonstrates to students who are trying to figure out the future that uh, a little bit of intention saying, you know, should I be in business? Should I be in education? Okay, I need to get a PhD. And then, you know, move from San Diego to stores <laughs> to see what happens, right? Yeah, that was and, not on the top of my list to do, trust yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just gave a short history of higher ed, every university and college, the uh, uh, issues that happen here on any campus, two, two uh, de departments should merge, no, we don't want to, force them to do it, how does it work out over the next 30 years? Very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, for, it, for the HPX department, it has been obviously a godsend, and I think for our students as well, because yeah. our major for a variety of reasons. I think the structure of it is really interesting with the internship and the other things that we do. We have this core section where students have to work in groups for two years. Two years, you're working on a project. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't happen uh, on an undergraduate level, probably anywhere. So um, we're really doing interesting things in the department and all of that was facilitated because we merged and we were willing to say, uh, you know, the future, at least, in my, from my perspective, the future of exercise was the health field. That's where you're going to find the jobs, right? That's right. where you find the good jobs. And you were right. That is where you find the jobs right now. I was right. So <laughs> I, I will take credit for that, right? I just feel like I was part of this success story. <laughs> yes.
So if you uh, are interested in this and want to have a longer conversation with Dr. Jeff Schlick and you're on campus, you'll recognize him because he's the only one in the dead of winter wearing shorts and flip-flops walking across campus. <laughs> That's true. You, you will see me do that. In fact, this morning I was over in Berkshire gym teaching my older adult class via WebEx. So I walked across from Whitehall, where my offices are now, to Berkshire in my shortened T-shirt so I could stream the class. <laughs> and it's the coldest day of the year so far. Yeah, well, you know, you know it's, it's like not even five minutes. You're outside for like three minutes. Your body can take it. So I think the point that I would say there, right, um, we're talking about intense exercise is good for you. Putting your body under physical stress, and not that you need to get cold to do, to do that, but the concept of putting your body under physical stress is what your body responds to. The more you stress it, the more it improves. So if you really want to gain benefit through whatever you're doing, but your exercise program specifically, I'm an advocate of more intense is better, assuming it's safe for you, right? So a beginner doesn't do the most intense thing because they haven't acclimated to it. You want to progress up to it. But once you're able to do the do more intense work, don't keep walking on the treadmill. Why are you doing that? It's time to run. Right. Boy, that's very exciting, I think. <laughs> uh, Dr. Jeff Schlick, thanks for joining us today. Really great talk. All right. And Paul, thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck to everybody. Stay healthy and safe. Yeah, stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, Pete, it's time for our weekly dose of Dr. Rada Krell and the Science Minute. I was thinking about how scientists are always experimenting, and it might be interesting to ask Rada if that ability to experiment and fail and then come back becomes actually part of their teaching, especially with the various modalities we're using now from in-person to hybrid to online only. Do you think I should ask her about that? Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, here is Dr. Rada Krell. Yeah, Paul. Um, thank you for asking me to talk about this topic because it's, it, it, it has struck me several times that a real advantage of being a scientist in this uh, new world of teaching, like you said, in these multiple modalities, is that as scientists, we're used to experimenting. And in fact, we are even motivated by doing experiments. And because we are used to doing experiments, we are okay with occasional failure. And we know that sometimes we learn the most from things that we try and fail. So within our teaching, um, especially those of us that are teaching a lot of our, our material online, we've had to think about creative ways to try new things to keep our students engaged um, and deliver the content in a meaningful way and still create community in our classrooms. And so these are these are all things that we're um, constantly trying new things to to figure out. And some of the like so you know the traditional teaching approach is, has often become you know slides with a lecturing professor, but that really does not work in general. Even in person classes, we've we've learned that over time. And especially online, when you can't um, kind of feel the energy of the room and see all the faces of your students, especially in these large classes with, you know, 80 to 100 students. Um, so the way that I've landed on using slides more recently is because we kind of all feel like we're floating in a cloud to some degree in terms of time and space and the way that we're moving in the world. To me, the slides are really like the storyboard for a class, and so. Uh, I use the slides to kind of plan out the trajectory of the class with built-in moments for some kind of pause and interaction. So, uh, for example, in this class that I'm teaching now, a biology class for non-majors, um, again, my slides create the structure for what we're going to do. But then within that, um, for example, the class I taught this week, we kind of paused and I did an online demonstration where I showed them how to navigate certain features of the class. So there was like this interactive element of showing them something live on the screen. Um, then after we've done a little bit of that, then I pause and there might be, there's a polling feature that we can use. And so in a classroom, I might normally say, um, does anyone have any questions or, um, you know, did, uh, is there any confusion about how to find the syllabus for the class? 
And so it's, instead of being able to do that in a live way and kind of see the nodding heads, uh, we can do quick polls very quickly, you know, yes, no. And again, that keeps the students engaged. It gives me a way to measure how many students are paying attention because I get a response right away. And, um, and again, just creates that feeling of interaction. Um, as we continue in the class, then um, something that I did this week was um, we, I delivered some content about basic biology and then we played some games. Uh, there's some fun like online game uh, software that allows you to develop some questions and it has fun music and there's a leaderboard as you're playing. Uh, and so that creates some kind of fun and engagement as a way to review material that's been uh, delivered in class, take a pause, do something fun, uh, and also for me to understand, did they actually get what we just went over in the classroom? Um, then, you know, I, I pulled in some audio clips in terms of things that are going on in the news related to biology, which is pretty much half of the news all of us are receiving right now, and brought those in and had some discussion around uh, some of these audio clips. And then, um, you know, as the final element in this class, I, uh, a friend of mine is, is making an online biology comic book textbook. <laughs> wow. So I had them take a pause. Again, this is a, a two and a half hour lecture that I teach. I had them take a pause, you know, take 15 minutes, read the first chapter of this like comic book textbook, and then come back and play a game to review the content. And um, so within this, you know, big quote lecture, we had done like five or six different things. We'd engaged, they'd responded to me. In the middle of all this, they're chatting questions as well. So um, again, it was a lot of trying things I had never done before in the classroom. But in the end, I felt like this package of engagement um, probably is going to be more effective. But it's a lot of you know, there's a lot of potential for something to go wrong because there's different technology involved. But again, I just felt like, um, you know, I've, I've done experiments that failed before and I'm, I'm willing to uh, take some risks uh, in terms of keeping students engaged. Um, and, you know, our, my science colleagues are doing the same things. Um, our microbiology professor this last fall uh, had to deliver all of her microbiology labs remotely so she uh, had the students, uh, you know, bake sourdough bread because what does that involve? Fermentation that involves microbes. Um, I think she had them make kombucha as well. Also, fermentation involves microbes. So you know, she gave them sort of kitchen microbiology that they could do at home. And my understanding it was it was extremely successful. But again, that was an experiment. <laughs> Um, another uh, professor, uh, you know, in the short videos she posts, um, she puts in little Easter eggs, you know, little things in the background. So then afterwards she can say like, uh, you know, um, what color was the, you know, the parrot on the wall behind me <laughs> in the video? <laughs> Just some little, you know, surprises, kind of almost like a scavenger hunt to kind of keep keep students engaged. So. In the science building, we are all doing our best to mix it up, try new things. They are not all going to work. But um, again, the spirit of the experimentation, I think, helps us to navigate this uh, challenging teaching environment and even learn some things. We're motivated to learn some things that I think we'll be able to continue even when um, we hopefully are back into a primarily in-person teaching environment. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do there that uh, in person too. Sounds like you're really uh, finding a lot of energetic, interesting ways to go move forward in this. Are you going to um, go over to the English department and teach them some of these experiments? <laughs> well, you know, the, the reality is um, and so, uh, that uh, at WestCon, we've had several webinars where across the board, you know, faculty are, are being creative and trying new things. So um, I can't speak for the other departments in terms of their comfort level in terms of experimentation, but just from um, some interactions with colleagues in other departments, I know people are generally trying to be creative. So um, again, perhaps as scientists, maybe we're a little more comfortable with the experimentation and potential for failure. Um, but uh, again, I wouldn't want to speak for my colleagues in other departments, but I know um, in general, there's been a lot of uh, creativity happening uh, across the university. 
Yeah, that's great and very exciting too. And I don't think they're doing that at Yale or other places like that. I, I really have no idea, right? <laughs> We're just like, we will do the, you know, we will do the best for our students and, um, you know, and, and, and hope that all students across the country are, are getting the best <laughs> possible experience as well. But You're very nice. You're much nicer than I am. <laughs> well, well, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see. Anyway, we're doing our best. <laughs> Thank you, Rada. <clears throat> we'll try to bring you back next week for another Science Minute. Sounds great. Thanks, Paul. Veronica Canassis, the Director of Library Services, has been a regular on this podcast. We have her talk about library services a lot. I think we've talked enough about that. We've learned everything we need to know. Keep going to the library. It's a great place, uh, especially if you're a student. It's valuable. You can't get everything online. Talk to a librarian. They might be a little grumpy, but they'll help you out and give you what you need in the end. Uh, one of the best things about having Veronica on, we thought, was her uh, insights into books she's read. She's very uh, well-read and learned, obviously, as a librarian. She loves to read. And so she's on back again today to talk about some of her favorite books, one in particular today. But she'll be coming back uh, all semester. What's the latest book that uh, you want to talk about, Veronica? So um, today I'd like to talk about Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Yes, that'd be great. <laughs> Um, how do you want to start? Just like we just did. <laughs> well, do you have any questions for me or just? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why did you decide to read this book? Well, um, I think with everything that's been going on in the world, um, and um, full disclosure, I read this one a while ago, so I'm, I'm digging digging back a little bit, um, especially after the George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. um, we started to go through in my family as well as in the library here on campus um, some some soul searching about our um, the our approach to racial and social justice. And it's always on those lists. That book is always on those lists um, of good literature to help understand the the how these issues, are perceived in the black community. So if you don't know anything about, or if our listeners don't know anything about the book, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a very, very talented author. He's a black man. Um, and this book is basically, I call it a love letter, but it is a long form letter to his black son. Um, and the issues that arise um, from being a black man in America and um, ways of approaching those issues. And it wavers back and forth between justifiable anger and uh, undeniable hope for the future. So it was, it's really, it's a, it's a pretty short book, but it's packed with just insight after insight after insight in important um, frames of reference for approaching the the white supremacist culture and the uh, and the issues that we have in this country surrounding um, race and equity. So it's been it was again a short read, but I read it actually twice immediately, once and then once again just to make sure I caught everything. And um, it really has transformed the way. Um, the way I understand it, I think that for me, I've always understood the issues intellectually, mm -hmm. and this brought it. This brought me a little bit more uh, personal, uh, made it more a little bit more personal um, in my mind. So, yeah. it's partly because it's a part memoir, right, and part yes. and the other part is his observations about where we are as a society now. Right. And it's written in such a way that he's giving advice or or observing how his son is moving through the world, which is different from the way he moved through the world. And I think that for me, what I felt when I was reading it um, was a conflict. Um, no, and it's actually stated in the book, too, is like, I, I want to warn you about all these things, but I don't want to destroy 
your optimism and your ability to walk through the world feeling safe and um, and accepted. So he's he was expressing some real conflict there about his experience of of the culture and how he wanted his son to experience the culture. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And having optimism is the only way it's you're going to yeah. move into the future, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> um but in certain in certain ways it's 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 so difficult. Um there are just what well, we saw in the last 4 years um how easily things can can be torn asunder. Mm-hmm. Um in many different contexts um and how difficult it is to build things back up in an equitable fashion. So um I will use the policing conflict that we have or the policing issue that we have in the country and say that, yeah, it's clear. I think it should be clear to everybody that there's an issue. Um, And for me as a researcher, as a librarian, you know, you go to the statistics and the data and you see that there's a clear pattern. But when, how do you approach it? How do you approach breaking that down? It feels like you, every time you take a step towards it, there's another structure underneath it that it needs to be broken and then another structure and then another structure. So what is the path? How do you, can you find a clear path to breaking all that down? And what can we do as individuals to, uh, to contribute to that breaking down? And I think the book sort of brought out those feelings of, right. I mean, the presentation of feelings of despair and hope at the same time, which they're completely in conflict, but they have to coexist and you have to have both of them as the motivation to move forward and, and, you know, despair as the motivation and hope also as the motivation to think that there could be a brighter future for all mm-hmm. of us. And I guess there's been other books like this in the past, but this one came out, I think at a historically opportune time in America yeah. where a lot of people like you and me could read it and um, access it, find it accessible and understand it in a way, just because of all the things that have been going on that are in the news that we read about and want to learn about and to stop, right? Right. Different time in history. It is a different time in history. And I think for some of us, um, for many of us, maybe um, there's a there's a certain amount of shame that mm-hmm. we can understand these things intellectually. But the, the reality is that we've benefited to a certain extent, well, to a great extent from the structures that have been built um, over the hundreds of years um, and that we are able to set set all of the conflict aside because it doesn't. It doesn't affect us in the same way. So having, I think there are many books that came out around this time period, um, but that one just was very, very personal and and very meaningful, um, I think, for a lot of people. Um, What I thought when I read it was uh, that how different his experience could be from mine. we lived in slightly different, uh, you know, I lived with more privilege than he did just because of the color of my skin. I acknowledge that. But the thing that struck with me most was the um, his experience with police and my experience with police. And I had basically no experience with police and uh, didn't think about it too much. And him, he, as a black man, had a lot of experience and changed completely the way he looks at the same uh, part of society, the same yeah. structure. Yes, the same institution. Right. Um, and we, you know, I, uh, since since reading that book, um, I've I've read other texts um, about the same the same things, and it is it's. I think for me, what it what this was the beginning of my understanding that there are really two different Americas mm-hmm. there are, and they're, they are completely different and we move through these worlds completely differently. Um, so I, and, and I think that is a really stunning example, which is that people with our skin tone 
look at the police as the helpers. Mm -hmm. So if we are in trouble, we will call the police um, because that's what we have been taught they could do. And I'm nine and a half times out of 10, they are, they will help. Um, but that is not the experience of the black community as a whole. They are not the helpers. They are, they are a, an entity to be feared. Um, and that is, again, I've known that, but it was not, I think, in the abstract, it was it was very abstract for me until reading this book and some other texts, some mm -hmm. first first time. and and again, there is some shame involved in that because um, it feels like that it feels like we, you know, that is the privilege is not not having to deal with anything like that. So, um, yeah, so this was transformational, this book um, for me in my thinking. I still struggle every single day um, because I know I'm not doing enough. Mm -hmm. But um, again, you keep running into those obstacles, and and the I think the work is just staying with it and yes. not not turning away from it because it's too hard. Right, and being an ally and mm -hmm. <clears throat> thinking as an ally. Uh, yes. Uh, Right. Yeah. And what we can do and, and actually for me, the what I'm what I it's what I'm trying to do is look at what I can do in my little corner of the world. So my little corner of the world being in my own family, in my small community of Bethel, Connecticut, which is, you know, very, very um, white. But but also what I can do um, in at Western Connecticut State University in my in my role um, as the director of libraries. So, you know, what can I do to make sure that my corner of the institution is doing everything it can to be as anti-racist as possible to make sure looking at our policies at our collections um, and at the way we treat people so that we are are sure that we are that we can raise the bar for equity um, in the library itself. Yeah. And we're lucky at being at working at a university where we do have that opportunity. Yeah, I think. absolutely. Absolutely. And of course there's um, uh, we all know plenty of people. We both know plenty of people who will listen to us and um, uh, have a uh, visceral uh, feeling of opposition to, yeah. not because they're um, white supremacists, but because they haven't heard or read the book or uh, right. thought about it in the same way, maybe. And so books do give you an insight into a different world that uh, you can learn about pretty easily, right? By reading a book. They really do. Um, they really do. The, and this one in particular is so powerfully written um, that I, people who have a visceral reaction when we talk about this, I mm -hmm. would encourage them to, it's a very short book to try and read it, to try and get through it, because I feel like the way it's written, the way the information, not information, but the way the experience is presented, um, it's so personal. It's not preachy. It's not screaming right. at you. It's not, you know, calling you out for being a bad person. It's just simply presenting the experiences in such a way that it's quite moving. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would encourage anybody who's feeling that way, listening to this conversation to just to read it. Um, and, and please reach out to me. Um, and I would love to have a conversation about it to see how other people are receiving this, this tone, this text. Yeah, that'd yeah. be cool. Yeah. The hater, the haters should not respond to you. But people who want to have a conversation—that's good. <laughs> they can if they want to. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, good. So All that right. was a good kickoff for the uh, book talk this uh, semester, which we're going to continue, right? Ah, I'd love to. Yep. Keep reading. Yep. I'm going to try and keep reading. I, I think I fell off the radar a little bit during the beginning of the pandemic, but now I'm back to it. So, oh, <laughs> so happy to do it. All right. All right. Thanks for joining us, Veronica. Sure. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. So that was a great recount of Between the World and Me by ta Coates. And uh, we'll be back with Veronica next week for another book. So listen, the one thing to remember this week, if you are a student who comes to campus or lives on campus, you're gonna get tested every week or have that opportunity. If you live on campus, if you're an athlete, 
you're gonna get a tap on the shoulder and you're gonna be tested every week for COVID-19. If you are a student who visits campus, you have the opportunity to be tested. Uh, there'll be a testing service on campus four days a week, Monday and Tuesday. It's on Midtown at the Student Center. Wednesday and Thursday, it's in the Hall of Fame room in the O'Neill Center. There'll be signs, you can check it out or track it down. So you have the opportunity, even if you don't live on campus and you're not an athlete, to get tested each week. And that will help keep track of COVID on campus, keep you safe and healthy, and keep other people safe and healthy too. Do it for Pete and me. Yes, please. <laughs> I guess that's it for at WCSU this week. Uh, but we'll be back next week with another edition. I'm Paul Steinmetz for Pete Puccio. Make sure you tune in. At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Folby. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening.